I want you to visualize with me a father and a son walking along a path, and this little boy is kind of skipping along, and he's, he's kind of walking beside his dad. And then at one point, the father turns, and he picks up the little child, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and he says, I love you, son. And he puts the little boy back down, and the little boy goes skipping along the path by himself. Here's the question. Was that little boy more of a son when he was in the father's arms than when he was skipping along the path? No. I mean, objectively and legally and in every sense, he was just as much a child of the father when he was skipping along the path by himself as he was when he was in the father's arms, in the father's embrace, being hugged and kissed and being told that he was loved, that he was his son. But the difference is that when that son was in that embrace, he was experiencing sonship. And that image is given to us by a man named Thomas Goodwin, who was a theologian of the 17th century. And the the picture is the Father's grace, the Father's love, and that we are the children of God. But there are times in our lives where we experience that security and that safety and that love and that embrace. And there's other times where we kind of feel like we're on our own. But either way, we're, we're still the children of God. But as we come to studying prayer over the next uh, six weeks together, the grace of God that's there for you in prayer, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer line by line, and we're going to see the gospel and how rich the love of Christ is through the Lord's Prayer line by line. This morning, we're going to look at the first line of the, of the Lord's Prayer, which is in Matthew chapter 6, and it's, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? Why is that good? How does this preach the gospel to us? How does this invite us into a place of rest? We're going to look at that, and the way we're going to unpack that phrase is we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is about God the Father, and there is plenty of Scripture that speaks to God being our Father. So in just a minute, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read the first 17 verses, and we're going to get a great picture of what it means for God to be our Father and for us to be His children. Now, the Lord's Prayer is gospel-rich. That's why it's in our liturgy each week. We pray the Lord's Prayer each week, but it can become so familiar. It can become so familiar, so route. We can get to that part in our service where Susan says, you know, let's pray uh, the Lord's Prayer, and we pray the Lord's Prayer, and it can just become autopilot. It'd be almost like if you were visiting a friend in Los Angeles, and you're at their apartment, and you're having dinner, and as you're having dinner the whole room shakes, and the cutlery shakes off the table and it falls onto the floor, and your water glass vibrates until the water splashes all over the table, and there's a tremor happening, and you are grabbing for your chair and you're freaking out, you're jumping under the table, but your friend is just going ahead eating their food like nothing's happening. And then after the tremor stops, about 20 seconds later, you get up off the ground and you say, what was that? And your friend from Los Angeles goes, oh, that was was just an earthquake. I mean, we get those all the time here. Now, you're from southern Ontario, so that would, an earthquake would flip you out. But your friend from Los Angeles is like, oh, this happens all the time. You know, the Lord's Prayer is like an earthquake of grace that God's wanting to, has, that Jesus graciously gave to our lives. But we can treat that earthquake of grace like, oh, that's just a tremor. I mean, that's just the Lord's Prayer. I mean, we, we, we pray the Lord's Prayer every Sunday at Redeemer. I mean, it's just the Lord's Prayer. This can happen. So we're going to go to Romans 8, and we're going to see how uh, rich and beautiful it is. 
The final thing I'm going to say before I read this text is this. In the Greek language, which I'm not going to bore you with, <laughs> I'm going to read in English, okay, but there's, there's four tenses, there are four moods, I should say, and one of the moods is called uh, the indicative mood, which means this is certain. Every time the Bible talks about Jesus and justification and, your, and the grace of God and you're sanctified, certainty. And then the mood furthest from certainty is called the imperative mood, which means it's like a desire of a, of a will. And, it's, and the Lord's Prayer is in this imperative mood, which is dependency, which is uh, a desire, which is uh, something that's potential. And the reason I'm telling you that is because we read the Lord's Prayer very softly because we're Canadians. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I need you to know that the mood of the Lord's Prayer, when you read it, when you read it in the original language, it, it actually sounds like you're commanding God to do things. Every line. Now, we're not commanding God to do things because it's not a command, but it's actually the same mood that if you were telling your child, clean your room, like really intensely, clean your room, that's, that's, the, ten, that's the tone of the Lord's Prayer. Oh God, who's in heaven, praise be your name. May your kingdom come. It's like a big deal. That we're, we're Canadians. We're very reserved people. We don't pray the Lord's Prayer that way. But I need you to know that's the mood of the Lord's Prayer. And it's important because we miss the richness of the earthquake. You know, earthquakes aren't like... Okay, that's not how earthquakes are. Earthquakes shake you. The Lord's Prayer is an earthquake of grace for you. Everybody in this room is going through things that make you think about it longer than five minutes. We'll be in tears. We'll be freaked out. We'll cry. We'll be angry. All of us. Every one of us. Nobody walked through that door this morning with no problems. And God has given us the grace of the Lord's Prayer so that we can have an earthquake of grace in our hearts to shake us out of the normalcy and the pain and the hurt and the trauma so that we can be recalibrated and rest. This morning we come to Romans chapter 8 to see what is the goodness of this what does it mean, our Father who's in heaven? Starting in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... 
We're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. We see God's great grace as a loving father. Here is today's sermon in a sentence. God met the requirements of his law with the grace of his gospel. Therefore, he is not a judge presiding over you. He is a loving father inclined toward you. Now, God is our Father by grace, and in those first four verses of Romans that we just read, we see that we're children by grace, which is good news because the perfect standard of God's law is not condemning you because it's been fulfilled. So the perfect standard of God's law now guides you because Christ has done it all. Martin Luther said it this way, God's law says, do this, and it's never done. God's gospel says, believe this, and everything is done. You're children of grace. Everything is done. You're coming here this morning, and you've spent six days working, and today you're resting because everything is done. Jesus takes the six days of work upon himself and the one day of rest he gives to us in great grace. Everything is done. Now, I want to say something quickly about sonship, and this text talks about sons, and I want to speak to the ladies for a minute. The Bible gives unprecedented dignity to women. So when it says sons and sonship, Paul is actually doing something really intentional here to really provoke, I just read from, you know, he wrote to the Romans, he's provoking Rome by giving In the ancient culture, in the ancient uh, uh, world, women didn't get an inheritance. The men got all the inheritance. So when Paul writes your sons and sonship, he's not not forsaking women. He's actually doing something countercultural, and he's giving a, a, a dignity to women that didn't exist. Because now he's saying to the women, by calling them sons, he's saying, you have an inheritance. That the rest of the world says, you don't deserve an inheritance. And God says, you have an inheritance. In 2016, if you call a a woman a son, it's offensive, because in our culture, we don't have any frame of reference for this. You say, well, I'm a woman. Call me a woman. Don't call me a son. But the reason Paul did it was because he was going against the grain of culture that was saying women are property. And Paul's like, oh, they're not property. They're sons. And everyone was like, what? So the wrong thing to do would be to go through your Bible, and everywhere it says sons and sonship, to take a pen and scratch it out and write, you know, just write children or kids, or men and women, to try and, you know, modernize the Bible up to 2016 to help everybody out. Because then you've erased the grace. You've erased the grace of what, I mean, of course, today, men and women, we have an inheritance in God, and we understand that, but you've erased the grace that was blowing away a culture that said they're not deserving of this. So that, so I just want the, the young women and, and all, well, all the women in here to know 
that when the text says this in sonship, that it's actually this great dignity that God is giving to, uh, that Paul is giving to both the men and the women in the church to say they've got these children. So our prayers begin with this, our Father, because it reminds us that we are loved, we are forgiven, and we are free. You start your prayers with our Father so that it brings you to that place of remembering that you're a child of grace. Like I said last week when I borrowed from Keller, you can't go into the king's bedroom and ask him for a glass of water, but you can if you're his son. You can if you're his daughter. You can if you're his child. And you are God's child. And so you can come to God in prayer in this great grace. John Calvin writes this on this text. He says, but by the sweetness of the name Father, he frees us from all distrust. And Luther, Martin Luther further writes, we begin our prayers, our Father, because we're asking God to implant in our hearts a comforting trust in his fatherly love. The Heidelberg Catechism reads this way. It says, Christ wants to kindle in us what is basic to prayer, childlike awe. And the Westminster Catechism gives this to us. The preface of the Lord's Prayer teaches us to come to God with reverence and confidence as children to a Father who is ready and able to help us. Ready and able. And again, like I said last week, I've always, I always saw prayer. I grew up seeing prayer like a consumer thing. I need this. I pray for it. God gives that to me. Bingo, bango, that's prayer. No, we don't go to prayer to get things. We go to prayer to get God. This world is broken. Our lives are broken. Relationships are broken. Our bodies are broken. Everything's on fire. And in the midst of a world that is at radical unrest, at a midst where our emotions are at unrest, in a world where our physical bodies are at unrest, God invites us through prayer, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, into great rest, a place of great rest. The Bible invites us to pray and ask God for things, and that's beautiful and good, but that's not the primary reason we pray. We don't pray to get things. We pray to get God. And so we've got this, this uh, beautiful introduction Jesus gives us as our Father who is in heaven. Because in praying that, it takes the objective truth about God's grace, the objective truth about God's forgiveness, the objective truth about God's love, and it makes it experiential for you. Instead of being the little boy skipping along the path by himself, by going to prayer and having your heart, your mind, your will reoriented in prayer, it's prayer is God's gift that scoops us up into his arms. That takes something that's just objective and makes it experiential. Oh God, I need you. I can't do anything about this. I'm helpless. If you're a control freak like me, and incidentally all of you are, <laughs> we, when there's things we can't control... I mean, is there anything more unnerving than when there's something that you can't control? Is there anything more disturbing than that? And we've got this, this beautiful prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Oh, we are children of adoption, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, God, quiet my heart. Bring rest to my restless heart. And so Jesus gives us this praise as primary. Because the more that we focus and reflect on who God is, we see ourselves as we really are. Which is really helpful. Because in seeing God for who he is and seeing ourselves as we really are, the more that we sense his majesty, the more dependent we become. The less I sense God's majesty, the more self-sufficient I become. The more I sense that God is great and he's the creator and I'm a creature made of dirt, the more dependent I'll become. The less that I sense that, the more I just kind of go through life like, hey, um, you know, I got this. And if something happens to go beyond my control, then maybe I'll pray about it. You know, that's how I've related to prayer most of my Christian life, more than I'd, 
more than I'd care to admit. And so this first line of the Lord's Prayer is so crucial. And every word matters. I remember being in this lecture, and uh, Dr. Lamerson, who's one of the, uh, the president at Knox, he said to us, he said, you might think I'm being nitpicky about this word. He goes, but I'm not being nitpicky. He goes, this is God's word. And you people are going to go out and teach God's word. So you might want to consider that accuracy is important. <laughs> and we all kind of were like, <laughs> okay. Who wants to preach now? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> But the words are important because Jesus gives praise first. Our Father who is in heaven, praise be your name, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. Why does Jesus give us that first? Because if we omit our worship to God, and our prayer is just, oh God, here's the list, we're going to worry in God's direction and call it prayer. And we're going to worry in God's direction, and we're not going to have any rest in prayer. Do you know how many times in, in, in my life, I, I, well, I can't tell you because I never counted, but do you know how many times in my life I've just, I've left prayer just as worried as I started, just as anxious as I began, no difference. Do you know how many times in my life, it's, I, I, don't, I can't stand here and say to you, every time I've prayed and I've come away with just great rest in my soul. But you know, that's the earthquake of grace that's given to us in the Lord's Prayer. That's what's actually offered to us. But you know, I haven't done that. Why? Because I've omitted, Jesus wasn't just, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus wasn't like, eh, I'm going to come up with something. This is like the alpha prayer of all prayers. This is the, that's why we call this the model prayer. Because when Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray, he prayed out of his own unbelievable experience of not just being the child running along the path that's technically the father's child, but being in the arms of the father and says, how can I get this goodness to you? How can I get this place of rest to you. How can I do it? And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And so this powerful uh, beginning, our Father who art in heaven, it reorients us. There's a powerful reorientation. So bring your worry and bring your fear and bring your tears and bring your anxiousness and, and, and bring all of the, you know, unfiltered you know, sometimes you just feel like you got to just vomit on the ceiling in prayer because you're just so angry and frustrated and maybe angry with God himself, and your prayers sound like the Psalms when David's crying from his guts, where are you? Apparently you're nowhere. I mean, do you know how many of David's prayers, if you read through the Psalms, they sound like, oh God, you're so great, and by the way, where are you right now? And all these things are going in my life, and clearly you don't But oh Lord, you are great. Do you know how many psalms sound like that? I know that sounds like a juvenile interpretation of the psalms of lament, but you can read them and study them for yourself. And scarily, that mood is close to the text. Oh, God, you alone are great above the heavens, but God, oh, smash my enemies' teeth to dust and break their backs. But, oh, Lord, I know you alone are. Our prayers sound like that. So often our prayers sound like that. So bring your worry, bring your anxiety, bring your fear and your pain and your anger and your frustration and your tears to God. But then the way we leave them there is through the worship. The way we're able to leave them there is through the, our Father who's in heaven, praise be to your name. I'm your child, this kid of grace that doesn't deserve it. And I'm really freaked out right now, and I'm really worried right now, and I'm really afraid right now, and life is really horrible right now, but oh God, you have done it. In verse 3 that we read there in Romans, 
Paul says, God has done what the law could not do. Our Father who art in heaven fulfilled the law through Christ and has done everything that is required of you so that you are absolutely loved, forgiven, and free. There is nothing that you add to Christ's work. It is done. It is finished. Hallowed be his name. And so it invites us into this place of great rest because our, our prayers aren't changing God. They're, they're changing us. And so it's this great gift to minister strength to us in our weakness. C.S. Lewis writes about us coming to God and telling him that he's holy. And, and, and he writes this. He says, We despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. It's almost as if God were saying, What I want most is to be told that I am good and great. However... If God is the object of great admiration and the one behind all beauty and magnificence, then to praise him is to enter reality. Whereas to not praise him is to become more profoundly crippled than the bedridden. We're given this prayer, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, so that we can actually enter into reality. That this life isn't all there is. That the thing that is absolutely freaking us out is one day going to be over. That one day God is eradicating all suffering. And that he is with us now, here and now, strengthening and ministering our souls and our weakness and in our torment. His grace, not just something that we understand in our heads, but that we objectively rest in in our hearts. And this is what he gives us. And so, in verse uh, uh, 14 and 15, he talks about coming to God as Abba Father. Right? Now, why do we come to God like this? Think about why you admire anything. If you admire a great restaurant, if you go and eat at a great restaurant and you go, oh my goodness, I was the greatest calzone I've ever had in my life. Or, oh my goodness, you know, Susan's got a place in, uh, in, in New York City, the greatest, um, oh yeah, great, see, she's already, yeah, the greatest red velvet, what? Red velvet uh, cake. And it's in the basement of the Plaza Hotel. So if you're ever in New York City, basement of the Plaza Hotel, best red, red velvet cake in the world. Okay, Susan, by the way, is like the greatest salesperson for all things that she appreciates. The White Horse Inn should be paying her money. Michael Horton, if you're listening to this podcast, which I know you're not, but if you are, Susan should be on retainer for you. Um, The things that Susan admires, she's going around, she's like, you got to experience this. Right? It doesn't matter what it is. Why do we admire things? You got to experience this. Jesus Christ has a closeness with the Father that we can't really fathom. And the disciples say, teach us to pray. And Jesus goes, you've got to experience this. How do I get this goodness in you? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be our name. That's where he begins. It's because we want people to experience the greatness of what we have experienced. We don't want them to miss out. And so there's this great closeness that Jesus experienced, and he wants us, he wants us to have it. And so we cry out, Abba, Father, because we're not slaves to sin, but we're children of God who have this, have this uh, inheritance. And you need to know uh, this, that that word Abba, you know, Abba Father, um, it's often translated Daddy, and that's good, but it's not great because it's, it's not actually a real word, so to speak. Like, it's only three, it's only in the Greek three times in the entire New Testament. It is in the, it's because it's an Aramaic word, but it actually means in the Aramaic, child babble. So, it's not really a word. So the way to think about it is, this child is so small, this child doesn't actually know what it needs, but it does know who it needs. That's you in prayer. 
It's me in prayer. I don't really know what I need because I'm so, infant, I'm so infantile, but I know who I need, though. Abba! See, uh, Dad here, the kids call him Bampa. Now, Bampa is not a real word. But when Rebecca was really little, she couldn't say Grandpa, and we were, this is Grandpa. And so she, one day she said Bampa, and he's been Bampa ever since. And a lot of you have that same story of what little kids call you. That's the picture here in Romans 8 of a child that's really too little to understand, you know, and, the, and the, actually the picture in Romans 8, I didn't read the whole chapter, but if you read the whole chapter of Romans 8, there's this huge childbirth kind of image going on. There's that little child crying out, blah, 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 and there's a little kid crying out because it's crying and it needs help. There's creation is groaning, there's, the spirit is groaning in prayer, oh God, because we don't know how to pray, so the spirit, there's a lot of groaning, there's creation, and Paul's using the word birth pains and birth pangs. You've got this whole birth thing going on. You've got this little kid who doesn't understand everything that's going on, but everything that's going on in the birth process is actually for the, the benefit of that child. That's, that's our life. There's a lot of things going on, and we don't understand it, and all creation is groaning, and you're groaning, and I'm groaning, and, our, and, and there's all these things in our life that can cause us to worry and fear and whatever, but in the midst of all of that, God says, you know what, I'm using all of this for your benefit. You don't know how it all fits together. You're never going to understand how it all fits together. Don't bother trying to understand how it all fits together. But all you need to know is that you're a child of grace. And you've got an Abba Father you can cry out to. And you can cry out. You're not going to know what to pray even necessarily, but you know who you need. That's this great gift of us being able to cry out, Abba Father. And so we cry out like that. And it's beautiful. Now, we glorify God in grace as children of grace, and that's why we cry out, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. And why would we pray that? Why would you pray, holy be your name? Isn't his name already holy? I mean, why do I have to pray, holy be your name, praise be your name? Does God have an ego problem? Does he need us every, every seven days to tell him how great he is, like C.S. Lewis said? No, God does not have an ego problem. God does not need us to come and worship him to be God, but we need to worship God so that we can be fully human. God doesn't need us to pray to him so he can be anything, but we need to pray to him so we can make sense of, of the world that we're living in, of the finiteness of our life, of, of our own mortality, of thinking about how big the world is and how small we are, how, how grand the universe is and how small we are. I mean, to make sense of it all, to have a real peace in our heart, to answer these existential questions that we have. You know, the, the bigger you get from a scientific point of view, the more macro you get, the more incredible order there is. And the smaller you get, the more incredible order there is. You can go in either direction and have your mind blown. I mean, and I'm no scientist by all. I'm definitely one of the dullest knives, you know, in the scientific drawer, okay? I am the dullest knife in the scientific drawer. But I, but I do know this in my naivety. The bigger you get, the more order you find. And the smaller you get, the more order you find. So if there's a God behind all of this order who is clearly somehow undergirding and allowing everything to happen in, in our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly because the world is broken because of sin, the only way for me to have real rest is for me to come in to worship that creator as the creation so that I can function fully as a human the way that he's created me to function. Otherwise, what I'm going to do, because every human wants to be happy, is I'm going to find something to, to, to put my happiness in. 
And it doesn't matter what you pick, and I don't care, uh, regardless of what worldview you're of this morning, you might be a Christian, maybe you're searching, maybe you're seeking, maybe you're not sure about Christian faith, but I'll explain it to you this way. It doesn't matter what you put your happiness in, it's too small. It's too small because it's, it's finite, you're finite, it's not going to last forever, you're not going to live forever. And as long as you're happy to not think very deeply and just kind of enter into an intellectual laziness, you can be quite happy. But the people that refuse to be intellectually lazy, and they refuse to say, no, I, I do want to think deeply about the world, I do want to think deeply about my humanity, I do want to think deeply about me, then the, deeper, the more deeply you think, the, without God, the more depressing that is. Because you realize we're made of dirt. And so the beauty of the hope of the Christian faith and the grace that there is in prayer is that the God of all creation says, by my great grace, come and rest and find rest. And so we cry, hallowed be thy name. Again, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, he says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. So we don't worship and praise and gather on Sundays to pray because God needs us to. We need to, so that our hearts can be reoriented, so that our minds can be recalibrated, and so that our will can be reordered, so that we can have true rest, and then truly enjoy every good thing without making it into an ultimate thing. And then we can actually have great hope in every sorrowful thing, because we know that all sorrow is one day going to end. And so we get this great contrast between being children of grace and slaves of sin. And so, as we live to glorify God, as we come to God and say, Our Father who art in heaven, praise be your dear name. Our desire to live to the glory of our Father is not completing our holiness, it is not completing our righteousness, it is not adding anything, it is simply reflecting what's true. It is simply reflecting that we are children of grace, that Christ is our righteousness, Christ is our holiness, And it doesn't stand to reason that I would somehow say, I want God to be my gracious Father, but I don't want to resemble my Father. That defies gospel logic, and that just defies logic in general. So the heart of the child, of this gracious child of adoption, is to live in this place of glorifying God of grace. And so this hallowed be thy name, name, it invokes this humble confidence. We say, thank you, God, for your rescuing grace, and oh God, would you continue to do your reforming grace. Would you give me that earthquake of grace so that I can have great rest in my life. God met the requirements of his law by the grace of his gospel, and therefore you do not have a judge over you. You have a loving father inclined toward you. Let's pray.